Welcome everybody to another edition of the Community Cloud Class. I am Eric Shups, your host, and this month I am joined by Neil Hodgkinson of Microsoft, who, don't let the Manchester accent fool you, also happens to be a fellow Texan. Welcome, Neil. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. So how long have you been um, in the States permanently? It's been a couple of years now, hasn't Just it? Just over five years now. Bloody, yeah. has it been that long? Yeah, as of, the as of the 15th of September, it was five years. Holy cow. Yeah. We're getting old, man. It feels like it was only a couple of years <laughs> I ago. I know. Wow. You got me saying y'all and y'all and <laughs> all y'all and everything. <laughs> Which sounds as good as me using English phrases, uh -huh. right, with my accent. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Well, Neil and I have been friends for I don't know, many, many years uh, now great. and uh, thrilled when he decided to come join us in Texas. Um, we've had some good times, uh, but we are presently, as a matter of fact, in Germany, uh, mm -hmm. in uh, Mainz, just outside of Frankfurt at the European Cloud Summit, uh, here for a few days, uh, talking all things Azure and AI and everything else cloud uh, related. Now, you've recently had a change in roles um, at Microsoft. In fact, didn't you come from the Azure side back into right. SharePoint OneDrive? Tell us a little about that. Yeah, so as you know, since we've been friends for such a long time, my background is SharePoint. SharePoint's been my life from the on-prem world right the way through to the early days of Office 365 when I was in the operations team there. And then um, in 2019, I had a change and decided to go, let's see what the Azure organization's like. So I got offered an opportunity to work with very, very customer-facing role, uh, onboarding, migration, adoption which is what I'm talking about today, or tomorrow. Um, the um, role was you know, really good, really cool, but my, my heart's always been SharePoint, and my passion's always SharePoint, and Office 365, M365 overall. So when I found out that the engineering teams were hiring in Dallas, um, I thought, what a great opportunity. Let's see what I can do, see what opportunities are there. So interviewed, got offered the role, and now I'm a product manager in the uh, OneDrive and SharePoint security and compliance team. Security and compliance team. So that's a bit of a shift from the area you're working it in It's a huge <laughs> shift, yeah. So my, apart from the Azure time, my focus in the SharePoint world has always been search, SQL operations, disaster recovery, that kind of very much IT operational based mm -hmm. workload. So security compliance is obviously something that's super important, or has always been important, even in those elements of the business. Um, I've never had such a focus on it now where it's my livelihood is, is security and compliance and I'm really enjoying it. I've learned so much from my team, my managers in, in just a few months, short months. Um, and a couple with that, learning to be a product manager as well, mm. which is very different from being a, a, a consultant type advisory type role to being the, the really the face of you know, the product features itself. Mm -hmm. So very different scenario for me. Yeah, it puts you more into the front side of planning um, how things are going to be rather than reacting and implementing. True, and it's it's interesting because we do a lot of work. We still do a lot of customer-facing work, particularly with partners. When we're looking, especially in the security and compliance space, we're looking for what are partners looking to achieve? What are they looking to drive in their next rev of their products? And also listen to our customers, right? So the customers get get frustrated by the millions of admin centers that are in M365. Yeah. So how do we think about those things? And then from a security standpoint, obviously, um, from the conference today, well, this week, you know, there's sessions on things like zero trust, network access, lots of focus on security and privacy. And um, we have to listen to our customers, and the, especially the financial sector, government sector, 
is super important mm -hmm. these days. We get that right. Do you find that people underestimate the amount of not just planning and effort, but the amount of control that they have over the security and compliance space inside of N365? Like, oh, it's the cloud. We're just going to turn it on and make it Microsoft's problem. <laughs> yeah, I think so. There, there, some, some do, some don't. It depends on the background of, of we talk about customers generically. Um, if the customer's coming from a, a business or a, a services sector that's always been very security conscious, you know, financial markets, for example, mm -hmm. have always had that level of security consciousness, and they, their feedback indeed has driven some of the features, many of the features we have today. But yes, there's lots of customers out there that just go, we just turn it on and we get what we get. Now, with most of our features in M365, in particular the security features, the fail state, i.e. if you switch it on and don't do anything about it, it fails to safety, mm -hmm. which is a good, good mm -hmm. position to be in. So. Because it wasn't always like that, was no, it? No, it wasn't always <laughs> like that. Um, one, one of the features I'm working on right now, which will be announced at Ignite, um, that is very much in that space. You know, I'm not going to kind of mention it, but people will find out about it at Ignite. It's very much a, we deploy it, and it's in an on state by default. And then the, the business admin, the M365 admin, the business itself has to make a conscious decision to turn it off, and indeed what are the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. And turning it off, or turning some of these things off, does can lead to consequences. But I can also, you know, we make very clear steps in the product these days to say, hey, you fully understand what the consequences are of turning this feature off. Right. So, right. Do you think people, um, in general, spend enough time thinking about that space when they're planning, say, an on-prem to cloud migration? Again, it's down to the customer. Mm. It really is. I think I would say, in any case, you, you can never think too much about security and compliance, or particularly about security. Um, making sure that you touch on all of the touch points, follow some of the adoption guides that we have, and indeed many partners have as well. You know, make sure you've touched on all of these pieces. Um, if you today, there's the big topic today is zero trust network access, right? We mentioned that already. And there's so many white papers and guidance and guidelines out there to say. It can be really confusing. Very confusing difficult to implement because mm -hmm. it isn't a case of I want zero trust network access I'll just go turn the dial and I have it it's there's many many factors to it in terms of people your remote clients your infrastructure your devices devices yeah. everything everything falls into that bucket so there's a lot to think about and many people don't there's you know just to hear you hear stories of ransomware attacks you hear stories of all kinds of data breaches at all you know in various locations and if you think about it carefully, no one can say it's ever foolproof. And, you know, as much as Microsoft and other providers are, are generating or developing security solutions, hackers and, and bad actors are equally as creative. Mm -hmm. So there's always going to be, you can never stop thinking about it. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, area because on one hand you have security, which has sort of a well-named, well-known best case scenario across a lot of different industries. Mm -hmm. Um, you have things like scanning tools like the OWASP tools and stuff that can help define here's the minimum standards we should meet mm -hmm. um, for hardening web applications and whatnot. And here's most people have a relatively well-known security policy. Compliance, though, compliance can be completely different from country to <laughs> uh -huh. sector to subsectors. And with it, just mm -hmm. take the financial industry, for example, and all the things that go into compliance. It's so easy to get that wrong. It's super easy. Um, again, we you know there's guidelines out there. Um, is complicated, it's very complicated to make sure you, 
you're following the guidelines and talk to your industry leads. They're the people who have the finger on the pulse of what's required. I mean, if you think about one of our mo the most recent upheavals we had, I was part of the GDPR compliance team at Microsoft for mm. Office 365. Mm. That was a tremendous undertaking just to make Microsoft compliant. Sure. To be sure that then we can make that promise to our customers that we follow the guidelines, your data's following the guidelines, those kind of things. So, but it's, it's huge. You know, you think about the penalties for that health. are no joke. Five <laughs> right. 5% of, of turnover. turnover. Yeah. Right. Scary stuff. So that's huge. But, um, yeah, the financial sector, the health sector, the government sector and defense sectors all have their own levels of compliance and people throw, and people throw anagrams, anagrams, acronyms around like crazy. You know, SOC compliant, I want to be HIPAA compliant, I want to be FISMA compliant. Understanding that is a role and it's, you know, it's a job in its own right. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. And unfortunately, it's not one of those things that you can sort of give a blueprint to a customer and say, I mean, you can give them guidelines, mm -hmm. here are the rails, here are the boundaries, yep. right? But uh, even within, say, the defense sector, if you're working for one particular sector, let's say you're working with military, mm -hmm. it's one thing. If you're working with DOD, all up, you're working with justice, right? It's totally different in terms of mm -hmm. um, things, even processes that may be similar, but have different lifetime or disposal cycles or retention. And it, boy, mm -hmm. it can be a deep and scary mess of weeds. It certainly is. And I know from my own experience now, even just a few months into my current role, um, when we're developing new features, the concept of, of privacy and security, um, privacy and compliance kind of go hand in hand in, in some regards, um, is baked into that process. So just next week I have privacy review for a product that we're probably not going to ship for several months. Mm -hmm. But that is baked in right at the early stages. So when we come out to the point where we're ready to ship the feature, all those policies, all those compliance controls are there. And usually we ship those controls before we ship the feature. So mm -hmm. they light up in a tenant, mm -hmm. for example. So a customer can get used to it, they can understand it, they can do their due diligence with their own security teams and privacy teams, then the feature arrives and they're ready for it. So that's very much a baked in process for all of our features. You know, it's interesting to hear you talking from that um, program standpoint. Uh -huh before or now because before you didn't think that way right it was before like the I, you didn't. <laughs> before i hated it yeah i was i was an it pro right that's what i did you know i was i, and I was at the the sharp end i would receive features mm -hmm. and then have to think about how a customer is going to use this how they're going to embrace it how am i going to teach customers to use it mm -hmm. and now it's more about okay now i i understand more about the process now it's i'm much more aware of how people think when they're thinking about just the very inception of a, what should a feature look like mm -hmm. and all the various touch points, especially in the cloud stack. When it's on-prem, you think about SharePoint, right? We've just shipped a new feature for workflow features for SharePoint subscription edition. It really only touches SharePoint subscription edition. Whereas if I'm shipping a security and compliance feature for the cloud, it touches the whole M365 stack. So. Yeah, it's it's interesting as having spent so many years as a consultant, mm -hmm. uh, and I know you've had this experience with customers as well. Where they, well, why can't Microsoft just fix this? Why can't they just ship this feature? Mm -hmm. And they don't understand that what they're looking for is the tip of a. It's the very top of the pyramid, right? There's so much underneath it has to go through to get that product mm -hmm. to ship. It has to be um, reviewed, and legal, and code review, and tested, and localized, mm -hmm. and then it's got to go through all the security and privacy and. Mm 
How are we going to surface it in the UI? Where does it mm -hmm. make the most sense to surface that? How should it look when we surface it? What's it going to do to existing customers? How's it going to be uptake by uh, new customers, mm -hmm. right? There's so much thought process and work that goes into shipping one feature. Yeah. Right. That sometimes it's a miracle anything ever gets shipped. <laughs> you, yeah. I mean, it is. It is. We we have timelines. You know, we have planning semesters, and we have when we anticipate. So one of the features I'm working on is expected to ship to internal partners at Microsoft in kind of the early of next year, next calendar year. Um, but even that is, what's it going to look like? Where is it going to surface? If there's policies to enable it. Will we ship PowerShell commandlets to do things mm. like tenant override? Mm. Yeah. All of those things. And it's not just a checkbox. It depends on which type of feature you're shipping. Many of them have, there's kind of a broad guidelines, but there's so much to think about. And I think one of the things that was good from my perspective, my first day in job was, okay, now you're going on a five-day product management training course with a whole bunch of other people. In fact, they re, we re-trained all of the product managers at Microsoft through the same training course. Mm. So it, that must uh, have been eye-opening. <laughs> <laughs> yes, <laughs> it was interesting, and it's interesting to hear different perspectives as well. Because obviously, there's a lot of, especially in the SharePoint space, there's a lot of product managers that have been there since day one, mm -hmm. um, engineers that have been there since day one, and it's a very different shift today. As it is, you know, the cloud is not new, but it's still growing. It's still as a technology, technically you could say it's kind of in, an infancy compared mm -hmm. to some other technologies. And it's the thought process changes of product managers that I worked directly with when they were working with the on-prem products, and now I'm working with them in the cloud products, and I can see differences in them. We've grown up, the product's grown up, and it's a thought processes have just come up, everything's attacked from a Come a long way angle. from BPOS, haven't we? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, and it's, so, Thinking about the scope of the role that you're talking about in Zero Trust over in 365 and, and shipping individual features, there's so many dependencies now mm -hmm. that you can't just surface something in SharePoint and expect it's going to stay in SharePoint because how does that look in Teams, mm -hmm. right? What is that, um, if it's a file-based feature, how's it going to work with OneDrive, right? Um, and then how's it going to be exposed? Is, do we need a graph API um, for it? Right? What's the, the the authentication model? Is this? Do we have to interface with Azure AD? Is there some extensibility we need um, out of that? The the cloud brings so much of this stuff, and of course they just keep adding more mm -hmm. and more um, stuff. That it's honestly every time I get into the admin center now, I'm like, this is a lot. Yeah. Well, I think the last time we checked, there's like, I could be wrong on this number, but I think there's like 27 different panes that you could call admin centers in their own right. It's, there's a lot. And all of them, like you say, are very interdependent. You know, Teams, Exchange, SharePoint, all have this huge dependence on Azure AD. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot there. And the area I work in, compliance, I work with conditional access controls and continual access evaluation. They're all AD shipped features. I have to work on how, how do these surface in SharePoint Online? And that was where I've been previously. Now it's going to be, what about Exchange? What about Teams? It's the whole stack. So. Yeah, the, the dependence is incredible and the amount of people we work with. I have like representatives from each of those different partner teams to form a, a, what we used to call a feature crew. So I have exchange of teams, SharePoint, myself, AD, all with dependencies, all with timelines. The project plans are like, who's dependent on this? When are we going to ship this feature? We can't mm -hmm. do that till you do this. Right. Typical project right. planning. But it's, it's the dependencies are huge and it just takes one one slip and everything gets pushed out. <laughs> yeah. 
I know you're a very technical person. You always loved having your hands on and getting into the technical and tearing things apart mm -hmm. and, and making them work. Do you still get to do some technical hands-on in this role, or are you mostly uh, abstracted from that? Mostly abstracted, but recently we, I went through a process with a customer with one of the features that I own. It was actually my first week in the job of owning this feature, so I didn't know, <laughs> didn't know a great deal about hey, this it. This customer's upset. Go talk to them. <laughs> yeah. And there was a problem, and um, it was something in the... It wasn't... It wasn't a service-wide problem. I'm not going to go into details, but it was related to this customer and the way they'd implemented. Mm. And, um, but the way they implemented was something that we would see commonly in that particular bit area, that particular sector. So we decided to look at it and make a change. So one of the things that I was doing, I didn't get to play with code. You know me, I don't do, I don't, no one wants my code in production anyway. Um, but what I did get to do was go and what I used to do as an IT pro. Let's go look at the ULS logs. Let's go look at the AD, AAD logs. Mm -hmm. Really dig in and find out where this traffic's going. What is it they're seeing? Why are they seeing it? And then work with the engineer to find out what is it about our code that we can change? What type of change could we make to give them what they need without that ripple effect of affecting everybody else? Because mm -hmm. that's obviously a key concern in a multi-tenant environment. And we worked it out. We worked with the customer. We did a test tenant for them. They worked it out. It worked the way they wanted it to work. We tested it with other test tenants. We Then we go through a kind of a, not I wouldn't say it was like a public stroke private preview approach, but obviously once we make that change for them, we don't just want to go, okay, let's roll it everywhere. So we test it through our ring system and so on and so forth. But it's essentially transparent to everybody unless they build their external networking in a certain way uh -huh. related to VPN connectivity to Azure AD. And it's fine. It all works great now. And it actually has turned out to be a bit of an enhancement to, our, to some of our conditional access work. So, But those out. are sometimes the best features, right? They come out they of are. a customer problem. Yes. Yeah, they really are. They, they, um, they give us more to think about. And it, it lets us think about not just what do we build in our, I won't call it, I'm not, ivory tower is a horrible phrase to use, but it's easy to be in the ivory tower and build something that you think people want. But then when you take that step out, which we do more and more now in the product teams, mm. and this customer says, well, actually, we do this. And if this happens, then this fails. How do we, how do we rectify that situation? And that's how this came about. And now we know that we've, if a customer designs their external networking related to how they do routing, express route, and VPN connectivity, if other customers fail in the same way, they won't fail anymore. Mm -hmm. So we catch it. Yeah, as, as being a product designer myself, um, you try and think of all the ways your product is going to be used, but there's always a customer out there that's going to do something <laughs> that you never anticipated. Like, wow, that's an interesting uh -huh. use case. We never thought of that, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it leads to an enhancement or, or maybe a change in the service or sometimes a new feature altogether mm -hmm. uh, for customers to yep. use. Yep. Yeah, we do a lot of uh, listening. So recently we've just gone through um, the term we use for it, we call it Polaris. Many customers may have heard it already. MVPs will probably have been on, on these, these panels. And basically what we do is we invite um, a group of customers um, or experts like yourself in the field who will come sitting on a call and we ask questions. We ask about certain features. And the feature, would, I won't mention it because it's going to be announced at Ignite. Um, but we sat down with customers and went through, tell us about a story when this happened to you. How do you deal with it? How did you rectify it? What was the fallout? What were the consequences of not being able to fix it quickly? Gather all that information. What would be their ideal fix for that solution? And then use that data, real customer information from 
probably 50, 60 big customers, mm -hmm. sometimes smaller because you want the mix, and then take that, then help that guide the product development. So we got real, real world stuff, Billy. So I know in the past you've been responsible for or deeply involved in, in isolating and finding bugs, reporting them to the product team. They mm -hmm. eventually get shipped um, and it fixes a problem, which obviously makes you feel good. But how are you going to feel the first time a product feature ships that you go, I did that? Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. I really <laughs> am. It's, uh, there's, there's, I've got four or five products that I'm involved with, but they've, they're products that are evolving as opposed to something that's net new. Mm -hmm. um, my core product so to speak. We won't ship yet, can't talk about it yet, but um, when that ships, I'm gonna be super happy because that is from the ground up. Very first broke the PM spec for it, deeply involved in the engineering design spec for it, right in a grassroots level with our uh, technical fellows to actually do a design reviews to make sure it's all cleared doing the security review, all of the whole thing end to end. I'm so, I'm kind of- oh, that'll, that'll, I'm be kind of that'll be fun, that'll be fun. Looking forward yeah, to we'll it. have to go out for dinner for that uh -huh. one, we'll celebrate that yes, one. We that'll, will. Be, <laughs> that'll be a good time. Um, th thinking again about the security space, you know, uh, one thing that, that I've noticed is that over the last few years, the sort of CSO role has become pretty well-defined mm -hmm. and hardened within the organization. But what I'm finding is that below that level, we're really lacking on the industry as a whole, um, sort of a security administrator mm. role, uh, where somebody in the organization is responsible for taking that vision from the CSO mm. and then working with all the internal divisions and, and implementing that and uh, providing the guidelines and, and really that hands-on person in the security and compliance mm -hmm. center that's making that stuff happen. It, it's People seem to just sort of take on that by default because someone assigns it to them, but. Um, have you seen any uh, customers or talked to anybody that's been effective at that about having a security hierarchy where someone is spending almost all their time looking at that security and compliance center and thinking mm -hmm. about it day to day? Yeah, so a few customers that I've worked with, actually not in my current role, but in my previous role. One of the things that I was um, deeply involved with was when Azure shipped Sentinel mm. as a CM, CM saw platform. And I was working with a number of big customers um, that wanted to replace previous platforms um, with Sentinel. And what I, re what I realized was that they actually had dedicated security staff. These were the people that wrote the policies that were in the previous platform. So they were deeply technical on that side. In terms of the vision, I'd say yes, kind of security architect, I guess, is kind of mm -hmm. a role that fits, mm -hmm. that, fits that space. Um, it's, we have those roles at Microsoft in our product stack. Um, but I've seen certainly larger customers. In, you know, you, you always think about the, they have the office of the CTO, right? And you've got architects everywhere, solution architects, enterprise architects. And now we're seeing more and more the office of the CISO, mm -hmm. the chief security officer. And now we've seen these dedicated security architect roles. I think from a training perspective, there are gaps everywhere. Um, in fact, kind of related, I'm, I actually signed up to do another bachelor's degree in software engineering with cybersecurity. Oh, wow. And some of the people on the same course as me are asking, well, what's the, re what, I can get a bachelor's degree in cybersecurity, but what does that really mean for the real world? What do I do next? And then the guidance that we give, actually, I'm, my tutor's asking me to help because he knows my background. And we're guiding people down the path of, well, CISSP, think about those, they're more real from a security perspective. But I would say to answer your original question, I'm seeing, I'm seeing it more often. I think there's more focus required. 
and certainly more dedicated training and you know the exams that we have at Microsoft exams if you think about those they teach you how to turn the knobs and the dials but I think there's more needed um, from a real world perspective yeah that's a good point we often talk about architecture on this um, show and and I've never really envisioned that role of a security architect mm -hmm. in an organization, probably because I've never met one. Yeah. But when you think about it, that's a, a very distinct discipline because it, you have to know technically to implement the, mm -hmm. the policy, right? Which means you've got to know where those boundaries are across the different product sets that your organization works with. Because mm -hmm. not everybody is on, even on the same stack, if you think about going from SharePoint to Dynamics to Exchange, mm -hmm. right? They, you're, you're shifting the, the goalposts there in terms of what they can do. Mm -hmm. But then if you add in, say, Salesforce and other types of platforms, mm -hmm. trying to get all that stuff just from a security perspective, not even talking about the, the underlying data exchange or any of that, mm -hmm. that's a pretty broad surface area that yeah. you, you have to get it right. It is, and um, the security architect that I work with, um, he, I've known him for probably 15 years at Microsoft. Um, when I first met him um, back in the original BPOS days, this was kind of a growing theme of having a dedicated security. So now when Microsoft switched to the whole security first, privacy first, all of that kind of scenario. And this guy was like the guy, he knew everything. But obviously there's B plus D, B plus S, we're basically on-prem implementations in, sure. a, in a different world. And, but he's stayed in that role and he's now grown to be, I don't know what kind of level he's at, but he, I would call him chief security architect. Mm -hmm. for the M365 platform. And the fact he's got all of this real-world experience now, obviously within the Microsoft paradigm, but um, his guidance and his advice is invaluable. So, you know, just just having that experience of having done it. Yeah, I, I'd hate to have his worries every night. Thinking about what. <laughs> well, he's the guy <laughs> I've got to convince that my feature's secure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so the, the uh, interesting thought space in terms of there's two sides to what you're working on. Security, that's a deep well. Compliance, that's a deep well, right? Somehow you have to find a way to bridge those together uh -huh. and make them approachable. It's okay to deliver a crap ton of features in a silo, but somehow mm -hmm. you have to make it easy for people who are onboarding to the platform or coming new mm -hmm. um, to it to actually make it approachable and usable. Yeah, I think it's, it, it, usable is the key thing because if, if it doesn't do the job the customer wants it for, they're going to go find something else. Um, I think one of the things that I truly like about what we do is we build lots of, I mean, dependency is not always a good word to use, but we build features that rely on other features instead of reinventing the wheel every time. Mm -hmm. So my feature, for example, is going to be very focused on some of the sharing aspects in Office 365. And instead of reinventing the wheel, it's like, okay, so if we share things, what does share things need? Sharing things needs levels, labeling levels of compliance, what can you share internally, what can you share externally. So my feature builds on the technology we already have. Mm -hmm. So it's familiar, it's tried, it's trusted, it's already received lots of customer feedback mm -hmm. and it's been changed and now it's a platform that just works and obviously iterations over time. But by building on that, we don't need to worry about it. We, we just know that that feature is accepted, it's trusted, customers know how to use it, so we take that and build other features that use that as a, as a foundation. Mm -hmm. So it just makes life a bit easier. Yeah, and that can sometimes be hard to do, right? Mm -hmm. Witness the disconnect between uh, SharePoint um, compliance features and Teams, mm -hmm. right? Where you have 
Um, okay, slightly different sort of data construct on the team side, but it's still surfacing a lot of documents and things that we consider um, legacy SharePoint assets, mm -hmm. right? But trying to surface those compliance controls, trying to do ECM with Teams is really, really hard mm -hmm. because it's not a, a ECM first implementation, right? right? So um, trying to map those, we have these existing things, how do we get these other legacy mm -hmm. products to work with? That's got to be, and it's different teams, right? So that's moving a lot of different Legos to trying to get it all lined up. Right, I think sometimes it's form, form over function becomes a, an aspect right, of making something that does work seemingly very well and easy and but also having those controls because you know we have all of our compliance controls for a reason um, and it is difficult especially when you introduce a completely new surface to teams let's face it behind the scenes it's a lot of SharePoint mm -hmm. um, when you put a new surface on top of that you have to be able to make everything work the same way people are used to so there is disconnects there's always going to be disconnects but as you know being a product designer yourself, you can't, you can't ship the perfect product. No, you just, uh, you, you you, it just doesn't happen, <laughs> right? Even years down the line, it's still not perfect. Well, and I, what I'm learning is it's okay to ship a um, immature product mm -hmm. uh, to get the feedback to, to say, I don't know how people are going to implement this. So I'm going to ship what I think is a decent implementation that covers most of the use cases mm -hmm. that we can foresee. But I, I recognize, and in fact, I plan for the fact that this is not a mature feature, mm -hmm. right? That I expect to get feedback and improve yep. that feature um, mm -hmm. going forward, right? Um, so we, you know, one of the decisioning processes that we have to make is, is out of the suggestions that we get or things that we could do, I can't ship a million APIs because A, I couldn't put them all into one specification and get them into, say, Power Platform, uh, but B, it would be just too overwhelming mm -hmm. for the users. So we have to think what are what are approachable things that we can do. There, there must be the same decisions going on and saying, we got 8 million features we'd like to ship, but which ones do we think would have the most impact and which ones can we get in the customer hands so that they can tell us how this feature really mm -hmm. should be implemented in the future? Yeah, there is, and the vision comes into that as well. If you think about the SharePoint space, you've got you've got the vision from well from Jeff, right? Jeff Jeff makes lots of decisions from feedback from his leadership team in terms of what's important. And then that's obviously guided by customer asks. You know, what we don't want to ship something that nobody wants. It's a waste of our time and a waste of everybody's time. Sure. So there's lots of that in terms of what do we want to ship. And then we have priorities, as you'd expect. Um, and things move up and down priorities. I do. I know my one of my features is on, in Jeff's top ten. Mm. So that's that's a good cool. place to be. Yeah. <laughs> so it is, but I've got to you ship need to it. Get it right. I've got to get it right. No, Jeff's great. We'll be fine with that one. But um, and it's working. It's moving on very well so far. So, um, but yeah, you can't ship everything. And probably an overused term, the MVP, right? The minimal viable product, is is a very real thing. You have to ship something, and then based on feedback and iterations, and then you know eventually you get to a point where it's now stable. So we ship versions, or there might be a change. In the security and compliance space, you never know what might change when governments make decisions to change the way sure. compliance requirements are. And then all of a sudden you have to react to that as well. Mm -hmm. So there's many, many influences in determining what you actually ship and then how you change it over time. And sometimes, as you, you alluded to previously, sometimes you have to just ship an enabling feature so that everything else can plug into it later. It right. looks incomplete. 
Mm -hmm. right? You ship something and people go, well, okay, but it doesn't do this and it doesn't do that and it doesn't do this. Why would we ship mm -hmm. that feature? Well, because in order for all those things to do that, mm -hmm. we have to have this thing in place, yep. right? And it has to have already gone through the entire process. It has to have received customer mm -hmm. feedback. Before we say everyone they can use this, then we don't want to create more problems when they, when they do. Right, and it, it's very, very, I'd say prevalent in the AuthN, AuthZ stack where I operate. I um, mean, some of the features we work on are enabling features that actually the, even the public, the customers may never see them. What you'll see is, we'll sh I'll ship a feature, we'll ship a feature, and then the another partner team inside Microsoft, maybe the, the Pages team or the Loop team or the Office client team, will build on that feature. They'll mm -hmm. use that as a, it provides functionality that they need to do something they want to do. Mm -hmm. So we got a lot, there's a lot of that going on. So sometimes product managers are great and you see, okay, I ship this product, look at this, wave, wave the flag, look at my cool products and you can demonstrate it everywhere. Sometimes it's like, yeah, this is a really cool feature and without all my, this feature, none of this would work. But yeah. There's nothing to really show you. I spent a year and a half working on that and <laughs> yeah. you take all the shiny credit for yeah. that. <laughs> I ship like six new APIs. Yeah. That's kind of it. Just some endpoints. But everything behind the scenes um, is there. And the other things we have to think about in that perspective is not just about what does the feature look like and how is it, how is it going to work and how a customer is going to use it. Our customer is going to use it. But we also have to think about when you talk about what gets cut, you have to think about the cost of those features as well. You know, if I have to ship a feature that needs to put a new column in the all docs table inside a SharePoint database, think about that yeah. globally, what that means for, you know, Microsoft Office 365, it's enormous. And the cost, it's a little bit more storage for backups. It's a more, it's another, another column in a SQL query. It all adds to the, mm -hmm. the cost, the time of actually implementing it and the time it takes to actually the feature to do its job. So all those things are taken into consideration as well. Yeah, and sometimes you get it wrong. And, mm -hmm. and you ship a feature that, that doesn't work as expected or doesn't meet the use case, and you've got to step back and you've got to redo it. I mean, uh, let's all be honest, the first implementations of modern um, UI in the stack weren't great. Mm -hmm. uh, but they had to do something. They had to take the first step down that road, right? Yeah. To figure out what works and what doesn't. And, and all the pushback and all the crying and gnashing of teeth when, you know, when that rolled out years ago. And now people sort of settled in Right, they've gotten comfortable with that. Um, uh, anytime you make a UI change, obviously it's mm -hmm. a big deal because it's front and center and, and not so much on, on the back end. But nevertheless, if you get a core backend component wrong mm -hmm. and you have to change that, that's hard. That's hard work. Yeah, you've got to get it right first time. And we're having the same discussion now, like you mentioned about dependencies. The feature that I'm working on has far reaching, potentially far reaching consequences for things like the search platform. So we have to think about what mm. they're, you know, we need a story for how search is going to integrate with this feature as well, make use of it or not. It's fine to say search is off the picture or off the table, but um, you have to cover all those bases off for sure. And, you know, I think about the, the, the old school classic UI change, moving the site settings. <laughs> from, from the left to the right, left to the right. On on the left, even on the right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, inconsequential really, but I mean, if you'd imagine what the blogosphere looked like when we did that for the first time. Oh yeah. It was just like crazy. So, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. So when it's a major thing like classic to modern, I mean, that's going to generate, there's always going to be friction. But well, then another thing that's changed in a good way over the recent years is Microsoft's move to extensibility first, mm -hmm. right? Whereas SharePoint was one of the first products that Microsoft shipped where the API 
the majority of it, not a little bit, but almost all of it was accessible, uh -huh. right? Um, and, and maybe we shouldn't call it an API because it, it doesn't really meet the modern definition of what an mm -hmm. API was, but the development stack was, was accessible uh, and extendable. And since the introduction of Graph, Microsoft has really taken the next mm -hmm. uh, leap forward where everything is built as an API first yep. uh, mentality. Um, which is great and which we all love and being an API provider ourselves, right? We've had to, to orient our thinking around the same mm -hmm. mechanisms, but it also makes it harder to ship a product. It takes longer because you have to bake that stuff in from the beginning. Yeah, there's a lot of work to do. Um, the API, yeah, you've got to have it. You've got to think about that ahead of time. It's not just about what does the feature do or what does the product do. It's about adding that, like say the extensibility and making sure that all of those things are are pre-baked, are ready to go, and then also, do they perform? You know, do they do what they're expected to do in, in the right way? Do they do they perform as you'd expect to do? Does my you know a graph call take too long to come back? Those mm -hmm. kind of things. Um, and you know, as, as we mature in that space, as customers and partners mature in that space, things just get better. And we've got mm -hmm. great teams working on that kind of that kind of um, improvement. Yeah, that's really good. What a what a neat way to sort of pivot your career um, <laughs> from sort of almost from the outside, not really, but mm -hmm. from the opposite end to now swing all the way back to the other end and see how the sausage is made. Yeah, it's it's interesting. And I've had product group roles before, as you know, in the CAT team, for example, mm -hmm. which was great. Um, but I, someone asked me the other day, what does it feel like to now be in the product manager role? And this is the role I always wanted when I first joined Microsoft 17 years ago. And I finally made it come true. And I told my boss that, I said, this, is, this actually is my dream job at Microsoft. <laughs> um, and we talked about that a little bit. And someone asked me, what does it feel like? And there's, a, again, probably another overused thing, term at Microsoft, is when you join Microsoft, someone turns a fire hose on. Right? You just get bombarded with information. 17 years later, I think that fire hose just got turned back on. And I'm loving every minute of it. And I've learned so much. And seeing things from, as you say, it's a pivot. It's a very different angle. And I'm no longer saying, frustrated, like, <laughs> why did they do it that way? It's more about, this is why we do it that way. So, yeah, it's a different, different. it's like a new career almost. Mm -hmm. I'm loving every minute. And I, I've heard you mention, which I think is a good thing, that you still have some customer exposure. You're still talking to customers about how they use the product. Yeah, we do. Um, not just like from here, from a you know, community perspective or other conferences. Um, but we, we do a lot of customer feedback. We have to right? understand the feature. What do the customers really want? And we talk to customers all the time. You know, If it's a product that's if a feature that's evolving, we take the feedback. If it's, well, what do you want? What would you like? Um, I know even in my, my interview for this, for this particular job, one of my interview questions was, if you could build anything in SharePoint Online, what would it be? Wow. <laughs> so, like, What'd you say? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great question. So I, for me, for SharePoint Online, I fell back on my search, more, yeah. more customizable search, because we've gone, we've gone slightly differently to more box-driven search. Yeah. Still lots of things you can do with it, um, but it's with the whole aspect of substrate and everything else, it's a different paradigm now. But um, for me, more, more, more knobs and dials in the search interface was kind of what I talked about, um, just because that's my background is so heavily search-orientated. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's not. It wasn't a question I was expecting. It wasn't. I was like, <laughs> yeah. I just think, well, this is broken. That's broken. That's broken. That's broken. Well, yeah. <laughs> but you're asking well, me. What do you want? New? What, well, yeah. What would you net new? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's 
It's an interesting thought. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about community for a minute since we're at a, a community um, conference and that's what this uh, Cloudcast is all about. And by the way, for everybody that's watching, this Cloudcast is now available as a podcast on all of your favorite platforms. Uh, so you can go there and get it um, from however you want to listen to it. You don't get to see our beautiful faces when you listen to the <laughs> podcast, so that's definitely a detraction. Uh, we'll, we'll try in the future to put some more, uh, uh, maybe more appealing uh, faces on <laughs> rather than ours. But, uh, <laughs> uh, but you can access it now uh, as a podcast, which is a good thing. But you and I have been doing this community thing a long, long time. Mm -hmm. um, what got me into SharePoint, what kept me into SharePoint was the community. Um, and and it, to be fair, not to blow our own horn, but we helped build that community from the ground uh -huh. up. You know, we were some of the early players mm -hmm. um, in it. It's come a long way. But in, in some ways, it hasn't changed much. Right. And, and so we took a couple years off, um, not by our own choice, mm -hmm. obviously, uh, and we came back to it. The community took some hits along the way, but I think it's come roaring back. Um, from an internal perspective, you're in a different role now, but you've always been a community mm -hmm. guy. How do you feel about the state of the community today? I mean, it's, it's, you could almost say it's as strong as ever. I think, um, like you say, going back to my very first introduction, we, we first met was in the 2006, I think it was. Yeah. yeah. This is one <laughs> of the London conferences. It was, right? yeah. And um, you, you got that sense of community always. I mean, especially because it was heavily driven by the MVP community at the time, which was obviously very strong. Um, as you said, we faced challenges. I think the, the community spiked in the mid, kind of pre-COVID years. It was mm -hmm. super strong, almost to the point that there was too much going on. You just couldn't yeah, be a part a of all of it. Yeah. Um, COVID obviously took a hit. But what was interesting was the community didn't fall apart during COVID. It found alternative ways to deliver virtual conferences. So we mm -hmm. kept that connectivity going. Um, community is big from the Microsoft standpoint as well. If you look at the work that you know Veza Muvenin does on that side, um, and other community people do. Heather here today. Um, it's always been strong, and I think it's built not just on that we all have a common technology. Because let's face it, the the technology we're talking about here is broad. Me and you working for we have, we have a very common interest in disaster recovery, but you're from a very strong development background, whereas I can't write code to save my life. Um, but what but what keeps the community strong is, is beyond just the technology. There's some very deep, strong friendships have been created mm. um, along the way. So that, that never goes away. Mm -hmm. And I think that those friendships are what got the community to kind of bounce back to where it is today and still growing. And conferences, as you can see, they're getting slightly bigger and slightly bigger. Ignite's back in October. Mm -hmm. uh, the Branson conference is running again. Uh, it was, didn't go away, but it's got back to more of an in-person event. So... The things are just kind of bouncing back almost. I don't think we'll ever, maybe not truly get back to where we were because we learned a lot about running virtual conferences and, you know, um, hate saying it, the costs are different these days mm, for running no conferences. Sure. So if, a, if you can be successful in a conference virtually, then it makes sense to do some of that as well. But a good, mix, a good healthy mix of both, mm -hmm. I think, is, is good. Yeah, I, I definitely think the community learned some valuable lessons mm -hmm. um, through that. I think we've also learned that, that travel budgets will never return mm -hmm. to what they were uh, before, uh, or at least it's highly unlikely. Um, and now there's additional, you know, thoughts we have to think about. Uh, you know, it's very expensive to travel and mm -hmm. stay, and, and are we getting the bang for the buck? Uh, and so as community organizers, we have to think hard about the content that we deliver and mm -hmm. making it useful um, to the target audience. You know, is it worth their time to come travel and, and do that? Uh, but I, I have seen 
some really great stories um, come out of the last couple of years of difficulty in the uh, community. You know, some people say, well, we missed the SharePoint Saturdays. Mm -hmm. uh, yes, but Collab Days was born yeah. um, during that period of time, right? And, and we needed to bring it to a wider audience with wider technologies, and that was a little too pigeonholed. Mm -hmm. um, and really our approach uh, uh, for that was to give a template for people to run there their events and do their things. Very much modeled on what we're doing here at, mm -hmm. at Cloud Summit uh, and uh, Cloud or uh, Collab Summit um, coming. And uh, I, I think it's interesting how people uh, found a way, despite all the challenges, despite mm -hmm. all the roadblocks, right? Somehow we found a way to keep getting information out there, to keep connecting yep. uh, with Absolutely. each other. You know, some of us, <laughs> it's funny, for so many years, good friends, much like yourself, I would see you more out of the country than anywhere else. <laughs> Absolutely. Right? Yeah. Uh, and so many of my friends, that's true. They may not live far away. Um, you're only an hour and a half uh, mm -hmm. away from me, hour on a, maybe a Sunday morning with no traffic because uh -huh. um, uh, you're on one side of Dallas and I'm on the other. Um, but it, so many people that aren't so far away, you know, we, we sort of got into this routine mm -hmm. of these conferences. I was expect to see you here and expect to see you there. And that changed. But at the same time, we started having weekly... Uh, teams meetings, mm -hmm. or or we we found ways to do hybrid and virtual uh -huh. um, yep. as well. It's really I don't know how it's perceived inside of Microsoft, but the strength of the community has, even though I've been around it for so long, has been a bit um, I don't know. Maybe amazing is too strong a word, but it's been very fortifying to see how strong the community is. Yeah, I, think, I don't think amazing is too strong. I think it, it really it's testimony to the the people who built the community and came into the community over time. And I was saying this actually to. Um, someone yesterday, I forget who it was, but um, about the speakers. And I had the same conversation this morning. What was interesting was pre-COVID, if we turned up at a SharePoint conference or we turned up at an Ignite, you could literally list all of the speakers in the SharePoint space that were going to be there and going to be speaking and almost what topics they were going to be speaking on before the conference was even announced. You could just, you just knew. <laughs> yeah. Because you knew <laughs> where the community strengths were and where the people were. What's really interesting seeing like today here and at other conferences, now things have started to move on from COVID, there's so many new faces, so many new speakers, and it's great to see, really good to see new faces all the time. We always, we always bred that, we always wanted that, we always asked for that. But I think that two year gap has kind of suddenly, there's a lot of the older community people have now, they're kind of sitting back a little bit, they've done their stint if you like. And then I was saying, well, okay, this time for new people. Or they're just using their experience to run conferences like this one mm -hmm. um, instead of being the primary speakers all the time. So it's, so it's great to see new faces. It is a, uh, I, I think two great things have come from that. Uh, a tremendous influx of new energy, mm -hmm. which we need because, um, uh, you know, you and I aren't getting any younger. This is a, a young man's game for mm -hmm. sure. Young man, woman, other, what have <laughs> you. Um, uh, it definitely, it takes a toll uh -huh. over time. I, I mean, I didn't realize it. And I've heard a lot of musicians say the same thing that are on the road all the mm -hmm. time. I didn't realize I needed that break. Yeah. But we really did. You can be get burned break. out very easily. And I, I got to a point where I was, a call for content would be announced. I'm like, yes. And I'd submit my sessions. And then as the, as the conference got closer, I'm like, again. <laughs> and it would get you. But then when you get there, it's great. And you, you always do your best. But it, I, I could feel that. My energy was waning a little bit. Um, and then I moved into Azure. So my focus changed. That was mostly during COVID, though. But I think, like you say, it's 
a break is as good as a rest, as they say, right? Or change is as good as a rest. So um, now seeing new people, new energy, and actually have people coming up to me just downstairs an hour ago saying, how did you do it for so long? I'm drained <laughs> and I've just done one session today. <laughs> yeah, people, it's funny how people outside of what mm -hmm. we do perceive, oh, you get to travel here and you get to travel there and you get to do this. And, but the process mm -hmm. is exhausting, and they don't think about the fact that we had to go from, you know, maybe we go from Frankfurt to Brussels to London to Amsterdam, right, to round out, you know, doing a bunch of this stuff, <laughs> and that we, when we're here, we're mostly on 24-7. You know, mm -hmm. we want to be out there engaging with the attendees and talking to people, yeah. and, and people want to bring us their problems, and that's why we're here. Mm -hmm. But it's a lot of work. It is. It truly is. I remember I, my, it's, I talk about this probably too much, but my... In one month, I did Oslo, Sydney, not Auckland, back to Sweden, and then Seattle. <laughs> that was a wow. That was a long time out. And then when we used to do the Office Three Six Five road shows, the um, with the mostly product managers and marketing team from Microsoft, those were crazy. I was in uh, Netherlands, then Johannesburg. Flew from Johannesburg back to London, onto New York, down to Miami, across to Los Angeles, down to Mexico City, and this was two <laughs> two shows a week for like yeah. a month, and all over. It was crazy. I mean, and like you say, it's great. I got to see a lot of the world, a lot of inside of hotels and conference centers, but you know, it, it is, it's, um, it's rewarding at the same time, and it is um, a privilege in many respects to be the face of that component and to have the respect of your audience. So it's a privilege in that respect. Let's not, let's not take anything away from it, but it's hard work. It can be really hard work. Yeah, uh, and, and exhausting, mm -hmm. uh, no question about it. But you know, the flip side to that is, um, I remember having a conversation with my youngest daughter uh, when she was, I don't know, maybe four or five years old and we, we had a globe and, and oh, I- She's like this big now. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> she's almost six feet tall. Um, but I said, spin the globe mm -hmm. and put your finger on it. And it just so happened that she put her finger on Hungary. Okay. And I said, Agnes, uh -huh. I said, spin it again. And she, put, she picked South Africa. I said, Tracy, mm -hmm. right? Um, and there's nary a country in the world that you can point at that we probably don't know somebody. Um, they're involved in the community uh -huh. in one way or another that if we called and said, I'm going to be in your town next week, mm -hmm. right? That they would say, oh, yeah, come on by, or I'm not going to be here, but my friends are there and we'll do this. And, and what a rewarding experience that's been. It is great. I was, and even, like you say, around the world, I was um, going through my Facebook list of people, and I thought, you know what? I'm just going to, I'm going to call everybody I've never actually met in person. And going through the list, it was like, that was in Johannesburg. That was in Bangalore. This person I met in SharePoint conference. And there was not a person on my list that I couldn't, had, didn't have. Even though, I would say there was a few I hadn't met, but I'd had good relationships over mm -hmm. email through work or the customer. But there was no one on my list that I couldn't give a story about and say either where I met them or what I, how, I, how I know them. I think I removed probably three or four people, and I've got like 2,000 people <laughs> on my list. So, yeah, the community has been great from that perspective. Um, and what are the odds, right, mm -hmm. that, that a kid from Manchester, right, and a, and a router jockey from El Paso, mm -hmm. right, um, uh, would be fast friends, uh -huh. right, and have known each other for all this time. I trained as a I mean, chemist. I, I didn't, even, <laughs> didn't even work in IT until I was 30. <laughs> 
Yeah, know. it's just strange how those uh -huh. um, and I, another testament to the community is I remember when I first started coming to the UK, how embracing the, the community there was, mm -hmm. right? Uh, this loud, obnoxious redneck, you know, waiting into their mist with his cowboy <laughs> hat on and um, whatnot. But there wasn't a day from the word go mm -hmm. um, that that you all weren't accepting. And and of course, we built a great community in the UK, and and I'm happy to have been part of that um, uh, and making all that happen. But uh, you just you never would have predicted this trajectory no for any no. of us when i think about that first time um and a mutual good mutual friend of ours spence harbour was the guy that brought me into the community we were working on the same project i was a pfe and he was a independent consultant and um the customer had fired several previous consultants we were rolling out huge sharepoint environment and they brought spence in to do it and he and I were like, I was the Microsoft guy and he was the not Microsoft guy. Mm -hmm. So there was kind of a little bit of friction yeah. to begin with. But the friction was completely unfounded because at the end of the day, we both wanted to do the same thing, which was the right thing for the customer. And the reality is me and Spence think alike a lot anyway with respect to SharePoint. So we got on like, we were actually, I just said to him one day, I said, look, there's clearly a trust thing going on here where you're not sure what to say to me and I'm not sure what to say to you. And he had the same idea. And we said, okay, let's just go for a beer. We'll sit down, I took him to the pub, or we, we both took each other to the pub, sat down and just talked about it. And he's like, yeah, I need to introduce to my friends. And that's when I got introduced to the community and to the, the London conferences. And Matt, that say, never in a million years believed that that would lead me to where I am today. So it's been, been cool. Yeah, been a great it, ride. quite the journey, mm -hmm. no question. And, and for those who are maybe just getting into the community or aren't sure uh, if they should uh, participate, um, I'm sure you feel the same way. By all means, jump in. Don't be intimidated by the fact that there's guys like like uh, myself and Neil and Spence and, and Addison that have been doing this for years and years mm -hmm. and years. You have something to say, right? And we want you to say it. We, we want everyone mm -hmm. to hear that. And so by all means, find a way to participate. Yeah, every voice, every voice is valuable. And as I said earlier, we're always encouraging new people to come and speak. And it doesn't necessarily have to be that you're the absolute expert in a topic. It can be, I want to share my experiences of rolling out whatever feature it is, whatever mm -hmm. product it is, whatever component it is. I want to share how we did it and my pitfalls and my learnings and those kind of, and that's how you build that community because people learn from you. Yeah, you, that's how you, you kind of spread that, that whole love of understanding the product and getting that and feedback even. You know, This was horrible, we get feedback to Microsoft because it was horrible, that kind of thing. Yeah, and if you're new and it's something you struggled with and you learned from, there's going to be somebody else who's new, mm -hmm. who's struggling with the same thing, right? Exactly. Who wants to hear that story. In many ways, in a way that we can't tell that story because we're considered to be subject matter experts mm -hmm. and, and we get deep in the weeds. And, and I have to make a very conscious decision nowadays to do 102 level, 200 level presentations because mm -hmm. um, I know what I'm like. Right. If I'm, I want to do a 400, I want to get all the way deep down in the weeds, right, and find that one super secret dial and uh -huh. that one special switch. But that only appeals to those of us who are that deep in the weeds, right? That higher level introduction stuff has a tremendous amount of value. It is, and it's that higher level introduction stuff that 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 breeds the the interest. You know, Eric's done a great presentation at level 100. I want more. So now you go and do your own research, or you'll come to another session. Maybe you'll go see some of the speakers speaking on the same, same or similar topics. And that's how you breed it. And when you think about going into the weeds, 
let's not talk about Microsoft Certified Master Program. <laughs> 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 and my infamous 256 slide search deck that did go deep in the weeds. Very deep in the weeds. Um, but no, I, I love, I just love having conversation. I love being able to do a session. My session at this conference is very high level, um, but it's a starting point. It's a, it's a springboard, if you like, for them people to go, oh, we can do that. And then they go do their own research. And then maybe they'll come back next year with a, comp with a session of their experiences of doing work with the product that I'm going to talk about tomorrow. Yeah, I think we've, um, over the years, maybe done ourselves a disservice by getting too deep into stuff mm -hmm. and making it seem like some of these things aren't approachable. Like, I could never know all the things that they mm -hmm. know about that. I remember... Um, we have a mutual friend at, at Microsoft, I won't mention his name, but um, uh, he used to be on the product team and then transitioned to a role where he talks a lot about networking um, and uh, how customers interact with Office 365 and designing their networks mm -hmm. and stuff for that. And that was not his background, not his knowledge set. I remember having a lunch with him at one time before he took that role um, and, and asking questions of, of me mm -hmm. uh, about you know how should I approach this and is this... Would people be interested in these types of topics? And I, I encourage them to do it. And of course, the content that he produces is, is amazing uh, now. But um, even someone inside um, had trepidation about taking on that new thing because it, it is a bit intimidating way down in, mm -hmm. in the weeds where if we can raise that up a level and make it approachable to people, we can get them more involved and engaged. And that's really the first, the first and probably the most important thing. It's got to be attractive to people. It's not just a case of having a, for a presentation, it's not just a case of having a, you know, a fancy title and a fancy abstract. When you come to deliver the content, it's got to perk a little bit of interest and get people thinking along that whole, you know, it's interesting enough for me to, you can't, to take what I'm hearing today and then go do my own thing and, and learn my own, take it the next level deeper. Because, um, you, you, you know, you present a one-hour session, you can't be super deep unless you want to do a, what we all used to do in these sessions, we do like level 300 and 400 level sessions um, at conferences. Like I remember attending conferences where a guy was just talking about um, wind, wind debugger, wind DBG. And if you weren't in that technology, in that subject, and deeply interested in it, the session had no interest to you whatsoever. You couldn't go in that session and learn how to do it unless you were already doing it. Whereas I think more and more these days, we we build these kind of teaser sessions to say, we're going to give you an introduction to Power Apps or whatever. And then it's like, oh, that's cool. I'm going to go do my research, get my company involved, get, you know, start looking at that as a, as a project in my business, that kind of thing. Yeah. Well, and one surefire way to get more information is um, buy us a beer, right? Yes. We'll, we'll be happy to sit <laughs> no with you No alcohol beer, please. Yeah, non-alcohol. <laughs> um, but um, happy to go have that conversation Always. Um, as an aside. Uh, in a way that we maybe can't do from stage and, mm -hmm. and whatnot and dig deeper in, into the weeds. I mean, that's what we're here for, right? That's its community conference and we want to talk to people. Yeah, I have, I have many, many people. Started off as being someone that just attended a session of mine and now I have fairly regular conversation with them. Not to, you know, answer every single question they have, but odd questions here or questions there. Hey, we're thinking about this. And then that's, again, that's how community grows. It really is how the community grows. And those people get more and more involved.
Yeah, which we all want to see. Well, we're going to we're going to put a wrap on it there. Um, well, Neil, thank you for doing this. You're I appreciate welcome. it, buddy. Thank you for having um, me. Great stuff. And uh, for everyone uh, that's listening, uh, by the time this comes out, uh, Microsoft Ignite will have already happened. Uh, but we hope you had a chance to get the content and enjoy it. Um, you'll see some of the things that Neil has been um, talking about. Uh, and of course, you can like and follow the YouTube channel here. Follow us on Facebook. And now you can get uh, this as a podcast. Uh, we'll be back next month uh, with my fellow co-hosts. Uh, joining me once again, uh, but I wanted to take this opportunity to get some great content here from uh, the conference. So with that said, we'll see all of you next month. All right. Cool. I think we got it. Very good, sir.